there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Winter Olympics got underway in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia. Bruce McCandless, an American astronaut, took the first ever untethered spacewalk. Konstantin Chernenko took over as leader of the Soviet Union, replacing Yuri Andropov, and halfway around the world, Pierre Trudeau stepped down after 15 years as Prime Minister of Canada. Robert Penn Warren, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of All the King's Men, which every person in America should read again right now, was named the first official U.S. Poet Laureate. And finally, Thriller continued to live up to its name and shatter expectations when Michael Jackson won eight Grammys and was awarded a five-foot-high platinum album to celebrate his newfound cultural omnipresence. It is time to be starting something for February of 1984. Hey, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my host, Mike. No, I'm your host. I am your host. That's right. (laughs) I'm joined, as always, by my host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, sir? I am joined by my guest. No, my co. I'm sorry. No, my co guest. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Drew McWhinney. Drew, it's time to dive right into February of 1984. This first movie, I, most people who are listening to the show have never heard of it. I had a poster of this film on my wall. Did you really? For Slayground? I'm the Shadow Man, Mr. Stone. He hits when it's dark. And he always hits his mark. I'm all around you, Mr. Stone. The Shadow Man casts a long shadow. And he's after Stone. But how do you escape your own shadow? Welcome to your funeral, Mr. Stone. Slayground. Rated R. Never seen the film until about a week ago. The first half of the film, not bad. I'm really happy we're starting with this one. It's not a terrible movie. But it's based on a great book. And like I read voraciously. I read all the time. I read a couple of books a week and I read a lot of crime fiction. So I've read most of Westlake stuff. I have a fondness for like tough guy books where it's about their job is they handle things. They get into a situation. Everything goes to shit and then they have to handle their way out of it. And well written. They're a lot of fun. And the Parker books are some of the best of those because Parker is such a great character who is so able to think on his feet and so able to adapt and knows everything, knows every angle, knows every scam. So Slayground was an early Parker novel, and it is Westlake basically reworking the most dangerous game. Two guys in an isolated setting against one another. And in this case, the use of an amusement park, pretty brilliant. We should start 80s all over productions, Scott, and just start remaking the gems we find that didn't quite work. Let's start with this one, because, damn it, it, there's almost a really good movie here. The first half of the movie in which Peter Coyote, as a uh, a hitman with some semblance of a moral uh, compass, is uh, killing people who are responsible for the death of a child. And uh, it, it's a fairly cool, uh, hard-nosed, hard-boiled crime story. About halfway through the movie, he hops on a plane and goes overseas and... It just the movie just yeah, and this whole second half, this whole thing that happens between him and the other dude, that's really supposed to be the heart of the thing. That's the book, and the book is such a boiled down, mean little thing. Like you said, this movie feels like there's a demarcation point where suddenly this other film begins, and Mel Smith's character becomes more important again, and 
it really is a frustrating adaptation of source material. And Coyote, I don't know if I think Coyote's the right guy charisma-wise for for that character, because I think Coyote's okay. I think Coyote's more of a weirdo. When you cast him right, Coyote can be terrific. I don't know if I buy him as a tough guy, kind of solving everything, skin of his teeth, pulling his ass out of the fire guy. It could just be because we're so used to him as a support player. Back in this day, you could see a couple of films where they're like trying out Peter Coyote as a lead, as if you would try out like shoes in a shoe store. Well, I like him in some of these. And we'll talk about some of the films where I think he really works as a lead. But it's interesting because I don't know. I don't think he's interesting enough to carry a whole film or is it just that's my own baggage? Like me, you grew up in the video era. So like video logos were as omnipresent and familiar to us as theatrical distribution logos. This was a Thorn EMI release, I believe. Thorn AMI was a British releasing company, and they handled a lot of uh, international releases. This was a huge turning point for them. They had somebody who had been responsible for most of their, their production end of things for a while who left, and somebody else came in. And this was the moment where they were going to be reborn as this dynamic British company that was going to put out this slate of films that was going to redefine who they were. When we get to the end of them, I want to give them a report card, Scott. So the four films are Slayground, Comfort and Joy morons from outer space and dream child very british all coming in the next year and a half so let's just put a pin in this here slay ground the first one i would call a missed opportunity you know what i would call a missed opportunity what most lucio fulci films <laughs> i think that means it's time for the black cat and the first time i kept an eye on him my last night there he was at the cemetery you actually heard him talking to the dead? God knows what you're capable of seeing when you've had a few. But I tell you, I did. <laughs> Loosely based on a Poe story, or uh, as is often the case, more than one Poe story, it is about a murderous ebony feline. With Patrick McGee, who every now and then an actor has a role where that's it. That's all you'll ever see them as. And it's not their fault or your fault or anything. A Clockwork Orange has ruined Patrick McGee for you. Yeah, Patrick McGee is 100% Clockwork Orange for me forever and will always be. I can't take him in any. And he looks here like he stepped off that set. He looks like he just went, hold on, Mr. Kubrick, I have to go do this over here for a moment. And it's such a weird idea that the cat is his familiar and they're bound together and the, the murders are happening and he's somewhat horrified, but he's also doing it. The movie just kind of lurches along from cat murder to cat murder. I would say that it's considerably more cohesive and traditionally plotted than your normal Lichio Fulci film. I almost can't fault it. It is 100% honest about what it is. The cat is going to jump on people 50 times and scratch them up and murder them. And it's going to be shocking and uh, not scary at all to me because I'm not scared of cats. But (laughs) it, it delivers on its promise. Since it's Fulci, of course, you feel like you're watching something from like Hammer from 1964. And then all of a sudden you get like a body exploding in carnage. And you're like, oh, wait, that's right. It's a Fulci movie from that. They are really lysergic. Like there's times watching Fulci films where I can't believe they exist because there's a slick to them that is undeniable. There's a look and a particular cinematography style that even as he changed cinematographers over the years, like there is a particular look that's unmistakably his. And then it's really goofy in the middle of it. And that combination of things is Fulci. I'm just not scared by Fulci ever. And it somewhat negates his reputation with me because I, I wish I had at least one or two of his films where I could say legitimately this one, that's the goods. Argento to me is Fulci with those couple of movies that are legitimately fucking great. I don't want to get too far into the Argento v. Fulci uh, aspect. Uh, I think that Argento had, you know, approached horror with a much more artistic thought process than Fulci. But I I sometimes think Argento is slightly overpraised. And a lot of times I think Fulci is sort of underappreciated. But Argento is, uh, has some, I think has some talents that Fulci does not. Let's just leave it at that. 
Now we're going to move over to a Drew's musical documentary corner. Drew, how are you over there in your musical documentary corner? Really sick of folk artists right now. Okay, well, then let's run through real quick the film that all of our listeners have been clamoring for 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 the last five seasons. I get it. And look, we're finally here. So I want to take a moment and I really want to do this right, because I get that everybody gives a shit about chords of fame. To to have this this uh, this free counterculture is isolationist. And and Nixon is using it against us. Nixon is very definitely uh, conducting his campaign and essentially using the line, uh, no matter what you might think of me, I'm straight. I'm a regular guy. And if you don't have me, you're going to have some hippie freak. Uh, who's going to have uh, dope in the streets and destroying the country. And, and he's using that line very, very effectively. Every, everything is uh, quite a bit harder than I realized. This is a, I, I don't want to say this wrong, it's not a documentary about Phil Oaks. It is a documentary filled with recreations about Phil Oaks's life that can't use any of his music, so you get music that's kind of like Phil Oaks's music by people who aren't remotely talented like him and don't really look or sound like him. This is Oaksomania. Yeah, fuck this movie. It's a lot of white folks who suddenly realize that things weren't great for everybody. And there's a lot of guilt involved in this movement. And it's one of these things where because I'm not a baby boomer and because I had baby boomer culture shoveled down my throat, a lot of it I reject. But to make a film about him and then to pack it with these recreations of his ultra compelling life that isn't, Deadly dull. This is a movie that deserves the obscurity in which it lingers. So speaking of Peter Coyote, I can't believe our next film is real. Scott, what do you make of Stranger's Kiss? I wish this picture would never end. I wish you'd stay with me tonight. Maybe he's watching you. A story of broken hearts. And Hollywood dreams. Strangers Kiss, a silver screen romance. Yeah, this is Peter Coyote is a director who tries to get his actors to fall in love. Only the investor is already in love with the woman. So he's creating an ill-fated love triangle that he's not going to be able to get himself out of. Here's what I don't get. Matthew Chapman is a guy who's gone on to other films. He recently did The Ledge with Patrick Wilson and Terrence Howard. His his first film, he decides to make a movie about the making of Stanley Kubrick's most obscure film, Killer's Kiss, and do it in a way where it's Romana Clef, so he can't use the name. So it's not Killer's Kiss, and it's not Stanley Kubrick. But it clearly is if you're watching the movie. And it's really about his relationship with James B. Harris, who, of course, was his early main collaborator. So it is a weird love letter to Kubrick that can't ever say the name Kubrick with Peter Coyote as Stanley Kubrick. Uh, It also features Victoria Tennant, who uh, we'll we'll get to know later on in the decade from L.A. Story and and, uh, Roxanne and other other films. What irritates me about this movie is somebody called Blaine Novak and he is the writer lead actor he is atrocious he is unwatchable and you as the as the film moves on you realize oh this is the guy who got this film made and Tennant does what she can but this guy is laughable as a leading man what's weird is the film even leans into it in the early audition scene where he shows up Peter Coyote flat out says, why would I cast you as a boxer? That's ridiculous. And then Blaine Novak plays a scene that's supposed to convince us that he's supposed to be a boxer, and it convinces Peter Coyote's character. It did not convince me, though. (laughs) And that gives the film this other weird dimension where the film is about this guy who's going to make this film at any cost, even though everybody around him is telling him, don't do it. It's not a good idea. There's a lot of choices you're making that are terrible choices. And the guy who is the writer star of the film clearly made terrible creative choices that he refused to accept the word no for on this film. And I'm hoping he actually heard many people say, maybe you shouldn't play the lead, but man, he stuck to his guns and he rode this thing into the fucking ground. Got his start, um, wrote, they all laughed. 
for Bogdanovich. And I do like Peter Coyote more here than I did in Slayground. And I think that the stuff with him and Dan Shore, I think, is pretty good. And I kind of like the back and forth between them. And maybe my favorite moment is late in the thing where they go into a room and they don't really have a movie, but then they just start pitching. And what they're pitching is clearly the killing. And the dude buys it in the room and he's like, all right, that's a movie. That scene I really liked. And that's actually a pretty good pitch scene. So everything that doesn't involve Blaine Novak, you see glimpses of a film that could have been actually pretty interesting and worth watching. Speaking of bad pitch meetings. Hi, uh, I'm an aspiring screenwriter here in Hollywood. Is this the place where I pitch movies? Sure is. It's the movie pitch office. Come on, sit down. How are you doing? That's great. Yep. I am a huge fan of movies in which women take off their tops and show their breasts to the man behind the camera. Okay, here's a pile of money. Thank you. Okay. What? You know how in most... Nope, in you're most done. Here's a pile of money. Thank you. You're <laughs> improv, Drew. It's all the development that went into this movie. This motion picture is dedicated to every red-blooded American boy who ever volunteered to serve his country, who survived the rigors of basic training, and who earned his first three-day and three-night pass to forget everything the Navy ever taught him. This is the story of Webster, Lester, Bunker, and Fricker on their first weekend pass. Weekend pass. Weekend pass. Even by the standard of the terrible Porky's knockoffs, this one feels like no one involved gave even a hint of a shit. There's people that when they write comedies, they know where comedy is supposed to go, but they aren't funny people. So they put in these placeholders. There's a girl who shows up at one point in this and it's like a, a setup situation. And they come face to face with the girls. It's the two of the dudes from the film. And one of the girls goes, hey, you know any good Helen Keller jokes? And man, I can't think of like a better announcement for hi, I'm a piece of shit. When you have a character walk into a room and say to another character, hey, can you tell me a blank joke? That's bad screenwriting. Phil Hartman's in this movie playing a character on stage named Joe Chicago telling Arab jokes that don't have punchlines. Reluctant to mention, this film was directed by the man who would go on to write and direct the apparently 80s all over favorite, Hunk. <laughs> I I don't know that anybody should be endorsing Hunk with our podcast name on it at this point. Uh, we have not reviewed that movie. It's been brought up twice in bonus episodes by people. Yes. Let's be very careful about the word endorsement. Yeah. If you're a big fan of Hunk, make sure you dig up the director's <laughs> other film, Weekend Pass. Dude, that sentence should not exist. You should never start a sentence if you're a big fan of the film Hunk. Wow. Speaking of good directors, Drew. Wow. Eric Stoltz is a 17-year-old boy who, I think, escapes death row and teams up with a hooker to find out who killed his dad in <laughs> Running Hot. Hey! He was 17 and sentenced to death. She was 30. And knew all about life. It's not every guy who gets offered a freebie in a massage parlor. The heat is on, and they're running hot. I was saying to Bobby before we recorded that I feel like I know a lot about the 80s, but every now and then I'm just like, nope. Didn't never know anything about that. So this is from Mark Griffiths, who is the um, Dynamo, whose next up one two punch is going to be Hard Bodies and Hard Bodies Two. So stay tuned for that. But I feel like he had two different meetings with Eric Stoltz and Monica Carrico. And I think with Eric Stoltz, he said, "All right, so here it is. It's a sensitive story. You're accused of murder." Your sister's the one who pulled the trigger, but your father deserved it. He was molesting her. He was a bad guy, but you can't tell anybody because it would put her in a terrible light. So you got to take the hit. You're going to die for your sister if you have to on death row. But then, hey, you fall in love with this girl who's writing you letters. Now you got a chance at life. So you break out and you're on the run and it's for your life, man. That's what you're playing, Eric. Those are the stakes. You've got to mean it. Commit. And then he goes to her and he says, nice tits. You're hired. 
that's the movie. And I will give her credit because she is determined to be in Eric Stoltz's film, even though this guy clearly is not interested in that. The only thing I will say that Mark Griffiths does right in this movie, the realities of sex work in this movie are shown with a fairly non-judgmental eye. It's kind of like we talked about in Risky Business. She refuses to be turned into a cheap hooker joke in this movie. She keeps talking about how reality works. Like I say, she's trying really hard to be in the Eric Stoltz film, but the film keeps pushing her into the other movie where it is objectifying her and it is treating her like just meat. It's a weird push-pull that's happening that makes it an uncomfortable exploitation film. Exploitation films have to know what they are, and this doesn't. Prior to the home video era, which is just about to begin in, in full, it was a lot easier to like rip off a movie and not get caught for it. Once VHS hit and everybody had access to pretty much every movie, I swear to God, Drew, this feels like the foul-mouthed big brother of Corvette Summer. Stuart Margolin is the cop who he and his partner are transferring Eric Stoltz to prison after the trial. And this is when Eric Stoltz makes his break. And he kills Stuart Margolin's partner. And he fucks Stuart Margolin up. And what's great about that scene It's them just kind of being buddy-buddy. Eric Stoltz is relaxed. Everybody's going to go get a hamburger. It's almost like a Pulp Fiction scene in that they're just talking about bullshit. And then all of a sudden the violence erupts. And I'm so used to Stuart Margolin as the bitchy dude in Blake Edwards movies. And it really startled me when the violence happened. And then this does have a few legitimately surprising moments. Yeah. And then Stuart Margolin is in his own movie for the rest of the anytime it cuts to him. It's again, it's a third film starring him that has nothing to do with these other two. All right. So we're going to move from teens on the run to teens that might go on the run if they ever figure it out uh, with our next movie. Reckless. What do you want to be? What do you hope to get out of life? The strength, the courage to win his freedom, Johnny Rourke. He only wanted one thing out of life, more. Aiden Quinn in a performance that speaks for a generation. Reckless, rated R. Yes! Now playing. You mean teens on the run. (laughs) Right, right. I'm using the word the way they use the word. Every teen in this movie could rent a truck. Every teen in this movie could rent a movie truck. Is that your standard for for real adulthood? This is the excellent Aiden Quinn in his big screen debut. A lot of debuts in this. This is the the directorial debut of James Foley. Soon he'll go on to do At Close Range and uh, just recently did the Fifty Shades sequels. It is the screenwriting debut of one Chris Columbus. Who will have a hit later this year with Gremlins, Aiden Quinn, the oldest teenager who moped around a, what, I think Pittsburgh steel town? Is it Pittsburgh again? No, West Virginia. It's undefined. It's a steel town. Research indicates that this was shot in the same West Virginia town as the deer hunter. So that's what they're going for here. Reckless is about, picture it this way. You're at a dog park. There's a pretty girl dog. And a pretty boy dog comes sniffing around and leaves and then comes back and then barks at another boy dog and then comes back. That's what this movie is. It's just two dogs thinking about mating. (laughs) I think I like the film a little more than you do because I don't think that's how I would describe it. But it's kind of like the Loveless is a fetish film. Clearly, James Foley had some of the same fetishes because this movie loves motorcycles and it loves Aiden Quinn in a leather jacket sitting on a motorcycle. And it loves putting a girl with her arms around him behind him on that motorcycle because it looks good. And and that's what the movie's about. It works is what it is. Like, I kind of like the young cast. I think Adam Baldwin is fine as the uh, the other dude. This is what hath the outsiders wrought. That's what this is. Somebody saw the outsiders and went, I can do exactly that. It's a teen romance. Like, it's a dude. I 100% agree that the funniest part of this is the casting of everybody because, look, Kenneth McMillan is Aiden Quinn's father. Kenneth McMillan's 75 in this. So, unless he had Aiden Quinn, who's supposed to be a teenager at 60, which I find unlikely, uh, Aiden Quinn is 40. 
<laughs> Love Kenneth McMillan. The problem with Reckless is that Kenneth McMillan is thrown a very pedantic, simplistic subplot. They don't even give him any like really good scenes. There's one scene where the, he blows up at his son. The little bit of my heart that I gave this film, I'll tell you when I gave it to it. It's when they're at the dance and they put on Romeo Void and it's I might like you better if we slept together starts. And that dance that they do together is so well shot and it is so authentic to the feeling of I don't even give a shit who else is in the room right now. Oh, my God, this is happening. And it's just as fun as I hoped it would be. The dialogue in this movie is abysmal. Chris Columbus is a you know, grew into a great writer, but this feels like he just watched juvenile delinquent movies and just literally cribbed the dialogue from those movies. It's cringeworthy. There's a bit where he's about to seduce her. They go into her parents' room and he says, so this is where they made you. (laughs) Like, hey, Chris Columbus, guess what, man? In nobody's world is that fucking sexy. What are you doing? And yet, These people are selling this terrible dialogue. There is something about the chemistry of these people that, to me, kind of sells this movie. I think it plays. I think this is a terrible film, and I'm stunned it's not directed by Adrian Lyne, frankly. All right. Uh, If we're going to talk about terrible movies and we're going to dig in together. Like when, when athletes make it to the Super Bowl. And like there's all the hype and there's all the talk. But before the game starts, you need just a minute to gather your thoughts. And really haul back and prepare to deliver. Rio. They smile. They're practically naked. Try to picture them with clothes on. Fun. I need time to think things over. Hot. <laughs> Very hot. Kiss me first. Kiss you out, Spanky. Oh, please, and pinch me too. Oh, Daddy, something happened. What are you saying? I slept with him. <laughs> Blame it on Rio. I'm sorry, I just gagged. I'm sorry. Okay, I I was ready. I was ready, but then I gagged. I'm sorry, I was so ready. You could look at something like Porky's and go, you wouldn't write that joke now, but I can see how in 1984 that joke was acceptable. I honestly cannot fathom how the premise of Blame It on Rio was acceptable even in 1984. Before we even start, can I just, can I take a moment to be fucking sad that this is the last film credited to... Stanley Donan. You you earn your place in the Pantheon when you make Singing in the Rain. The most joyous musical ever made. He was so good. On the town, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. This man was so good at what he did. And yes, I know I once gave credit for Charade to a different director here on the show, but I know it was his. He's very, very gifted, which makes it even more confounding that somehow he and Larry Gelbart got together and decided that this French movie needed to be remade this way at this point in history. Two guys go on vacation with their teenage daughters. The Michael Caine one fucks his friend's daughter, 16, 17. And the other daughter is Demi Moore, who seems like you often like to say, he seems to be in a completely different movie altogether. In order for you to buy a madcap farce, you have to at least want the protagonist to not get caught. You have to like him so you don't want him to get caught, and therefore the jokes work. In Blame It on Rio, not only do you want the Michael King character to get caught, I want him to get shot in the head. He's terrible, and here's the thing. They make sure at the very beginning of the film to set up that Joseph Bologna is also playing a piece of shit. That is the weirdest setting of stakes for characters in terms of like, where do you, okay, well, let's make sure that he can't be upset later. We'll drop a bombshell later that shows he's even worse. There's this theme going on where Bologna is with his daughter. They're very open and they talk about their sexual, her sexual relationship. And he wants to know if and when she has intercourse and da, 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 da. That was creepy. 34 years ago. I don't care what you say. That's creepy in 1984. Uh, here's the thing. I think there's more of a farce in a movie simply about a father and a daughter on vacation. Yeah, and she's of age. The only way this works is if she's of age and they go on vacation together. And he says, yeah, we have an open communication. And as she starts communicating, he realizes, oh, my God, I don't fucking want to know anything. That's a comedy. 
because that's about the real stuff that happens in families where you just realize, oh, shit, maybe I'm not as progressive as I think, or maybe I'm not as open minded as I think. Maybe as parents, we delude ourselves into thinking, yeah, I'll be fine. But how did nobody writing on the set of this movie go? Shouldn't we change it so that they think he's screwing the young, the underage girl? Wouldn't that be funnier that everyone thinks he is, but he's not? The Michael Caine thing, the moment that's introduced, it, the movie becomes despicable. It gets so gross. There's it's, it's played for broad laugh. They make references to like when he would change her diapers as a baby. Why are you putting me through this? Why do I have to listen to this? Are you fucking kidding me? Tell me the movie is about an overprotective dad who brings his daughter to a, a French resort and discovers that people are very free with their sexuality and he's not sure how to handle that. Or the French version of this movie may play because in France you could have a, an affair with a 17-year-old and it's not as big a deal. It is a big deal in American culture. It is a giant deal if that is a child that you essentially co-raised because we all understand that when you are very close friends with another family and you do things together all the time, there is a co-parenting situation that ends up happening to some degree as you go back and forth because rules end up in common and you have attitudes in common. That's why you can be friends and travel together and and share those experiences because you have similar attitudes about parenting. There's really no question that in this situation, as this movie sets up, when they go on this vacation, Matthew, played by Michael Caine, is a co-parent of sorts to Michelle Johnson, who he fucks. And that is so unrepentantly disgusting. Okay, I'm giving you script notes on Blame It on Rio. I'm, I'm reading this in disbelief while working at the studio. And I'm like, okay, look, we're making this. This is actually in production. Shit, can I meet with them before it starts shooting? I, no, I get that it's going to happen. Can I just meet with them and give them a note? How about this? Matthew does have sex with a young woman. It is not his friend's daughter. It is a young South American woman who in that culture is more sexually liberated and ready. It's still gross. You're still making a gross movie, but it's not the grossest movie. Then the girls could say, she's our age. What's wrong with you? And then you have a moral compass in your film that at least people are talking about. This is a guy in a trench coat saying you want to watch Michael Caine fucking underage girl. There's no chastisement. There's no that's really wrong. No, I mean, the last line of the movie is basically like, well, you only get to be young once unless you fucking underage girl. I mean, that's literally the punchline of the film. Here's what bothers me as well. And you're right. It, the movie is a dude in a raincoat. And here's how you know it because of the way it treats Michelle Johnson. Michelle Johnson seems like she came to the, the table game for whatever was going to happen. Unfortunately, the only club in the golf bag that they had was get her to take her clothes off a lot. Make sure she takes her clothes off a whole lot. She could be the worst young actress of the decade, or she could be uh, on level of Mariel Hemingway. You can't tell. You know why? Because this movie doesn't care if she's talented or not. She's just there for Michael Caine to leer at. It's, it, it's, it's reprehensible. 15 minutes before the end of the movie, Valerie Harper swoops in with another movie in her pocket. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's way too late for this. Stop that. That's not the movie you're making. It's not funny. And that that I was like, you know, the second time, this is the second time I've seen it. And I'm thinking sexual politics wise, it's one of the most misshapen and ugly films we've ever covered. Does it at least have some laughs? No, it doesn't. It's atrocious. And it is unpleasantly explicit. The scene where she gives the Polaroids to him is frankly, and I, I say this as a dude who grew up in the 80s looking at nudity in the 80s. It's still shocking. Even as horny 15-year-olds, you don't even know how to articulate it. You're just like, eh, it's a little gross. It's a little, all right. It's a lot gross. And in fact, that should, that should be the pull quote. Blame it on Rio. It's a lot gross, Drew McQueenie. Now let's move on to a very underseen and I think fairly underrated sci-fi film called Android. There's these tiny little or, or indie uh, sci-fi films that, you know, some of them like – catch catch a little bit of a cult uh, uh, breeze and some of them never do like for example battle beyond the stars is like talked about infinitely more <laughs> than android but this is a really cool little sci-fi movie this was a corman production and when he saw that it turned out as more of a low-key drama in a space station he sold it back to the producers and i don't think they ended up 
making their money back, unfortunately. But this is a fairly interesting, low-key sci-fi film about an android played by Don Opper and a mad scientist, of course, played by... Policeman! Klaus Kinski. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's, it's basically, uh, the, um, he's up there building uh, androids and, and think he's kind of forgotten about. That's how it feels. It feels like he just found the, the asshole corner of the universe and he's just parked in a little space station. Three, uh, criminals board the ship under false pretenses and, uh, cause our android who is going through i would say uh, electronic adolescence in that he's horny and le- learning about human sexuality so that leads to some interesting conflicts and it goes to some places you'd expect and then it goes to some places you wouldn't i think it's a pretty decent little sci-fi movie i dug it it feels handmade i know this isn't how it was made but if you were to tell me that the backstory was this guy took seven years making this in his garage and he built all the sets himself, and he operated everything, I'd believe you. Because it kind of has that feeling like it's a sci-fi film made by somebody who clearly really loves science fiction and has thought about it and is trying to make this almost an experiential movie about being an android who was built in the image of humanity, but never really allowed to interact with it. That's a cool little story, and it's handled on a very small scale. And I love that the movie commits to the shtick of, even in the closing credits, Max 404 is just billed as himself. People will know him uh, as one of the bounty hunters in the Critters series. But this is really the showcase for him, and it's built around all these little mannerisms and all the little performance stuff. And Even now, that's considered like one of those things. If you do it the right high-end gloss on it, you get Ex Machina. And it's a big deal for an actor to play a robot and to play that moment of awakening. And, you know, you heard everybody talk about Alicia Vikander and, and how amazing that performance is. And they're right. It is. Because it's the kind of role that an actor can really dig into and find lots of little stuff to do that informs that performance. And I think Opera gives one of those performances here. It's really well studied. Right. My, but what I like, Drew, what I like about Android is when the Android finally has sex with Klaus Kinski's teenage daughter. <laughs> yes. I can't get off it. We should have saved Blame It yeah. On Rio for last. Yeah, I'm no, sorry. I'm sorry. It, I, Let's move on, Drew. Sure. To an ensemble comedy full of great actors. Wait, 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 wait. And it, wait. If they're not teenagers and reckless, then you don't get to call this a comedy, Scott. Dude. This movie opens with a Michael McDonald song. That's all you need to know. It's called Crackers, and it's about some criminals, yeah. (laughs) I didn't know you did a Michael McDonald. From Louis Maul, director of Atlantic City, comes a motion picture comedy about a fun-loving bunch that are out of luck, out of line, out to lunch, and into larceny. Donald Sutherland, Jack Warden, and Sean Penn. They're crackers. And with a combination like that, nobody's safe is safe. I don't I don't know that I agree this is a comedy. Crackers is a loose remake of a film called Big Deal on Madonna Street. And I can only assume that this was at one point a fast-paced, colorful, quippy comedy about a bunch of misfits who decide that they're going to rob one of their own. I've never seen Big Deal on Madonna Street. I can guarantee you, having not seen it, it is infinitely better than the laugh-free. There's not one laugh in this movie. The only person who comes close to a laugh in this movie, and we'll get to the cast because I want to blame some people. Who's the only person in this movie, Drew, who is a ray of sunshine? The queen, Christine Baranski, who um, shows up to play in this film in a way that nobody else did. Yeah, Louis Mal, Louis Mal coming off Atlantic City and arguably his most celebrated film, My Dinner with Andre. And Donald Sutherland is ostensibly our hero, our anti-hero, our I wanted to punch him in the face, this whole film. Jack Warden is the owner of the pawn shop that he, he wants to rob. Sean Penn. Wow. Wow. Can I, can I give you my theory? Sean Penn and Nicolas Cage, very tight, very early on. I think there was a competition between them to see how far they could push the weird, unacceptable choice in a film and get away with it. 
and you see Cage do it over and over. And Cage would make big choices that looked absolutely insane. And I love the the comment recently in the uh, Kathleen Turner interview where she talked about Peggy Sue got married and showing up and just being like, all right, buddy, whatever. And just having to play her part opposite that and using that as fuel for why they needed to be divorced because that choice was so insane to her. I think this is one of those moments where he said, I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to do this voice and I'll play the character this way. And I'm going to see who says what. I'm going to see how far I can go. Harmonica blaring uh, juvenile delinquent. And his voice is in a different register. A lot of times, even when we look at like a young, a very young Tom Cruise or even a young Eric Stoltz, you can see little tidbits in there of, oh, God, that's what he's going to become. And I've seen that in uh, in other Sean Penn performances. But in this film, if if I didn't know Sean Penn and I'm casting a movie and someone said, take a look at him in Crackers, I would never hire him. He is off-putting to the nth degree in this movie. I'm having the hardest time with this movie. This, this movie is an ensemble comedy with no comedy that can't get its arms around the ensemble. Like, you can't even really describe the way this group of people is supposed to work. The point of this is supposed to be you got this guy at the center of it, Jack Warden, who runs this pawn shop like his little kingdom. Yeah, but what he does, he doesn't do anything wrong to them. And and that's the setup. That's where your setup falters, because clearly what you want to show in those scenes at the beginning is that everybody who comes in, he takes just enough advantage of them to make them feel like they got royally fucked. Instead, the Jack Warden character comes across like a logical man trying to keep his business afloat. I'm supposed to empathize with Sean Penn here. But I don't. And that's the mistake of the writing. That is where the movie fails, is the movie fails to make him the imperious shitbag king of this little kingdom. Instead, he's just a dude running a pawn shop and everybody around him is awful and kind of low key awful. And Donald Sutherland, the guy who is supposed to run a security, is also supposedly kind of his best friend. And the movie wants to, at the very end, drop all this together. The heist that they plan when he's out and it all goes wrong and all the planning means that what happens is they get to know everybody around that building. They get to know that little community that's around the building and they interact with them. And then everybody ends up coming together. By the time Jack Warden finds them in that building at the end and he's brokenhearted because of what's just happened to him, they really are his friends and they are there to support him. And that's supposed to be the way the the shoe drops none of that works what's weird to me is when michael kane shows up and has sex with jack warden's daughter i was just like what is happening in (laughs) crackers stop stop michael kane stop you can't be in every movie doing that now let's move on to another film drew another film that came out in february of 1984 I'm not sure that's an actual transition. I'm not sure that counts as a bridge from one film to another. (laughs) But Tom Selleck, we recently saw Tom Selleck in. We know that he missed out on getting to play Indiana Jones because his contract uh, for Magnum P.I. was was rocked and he couldn't get out of his contract. So then when he got a chance to make a movie, he went ahead and got to make High Road to China which we reviewed last season, and I remember clear as day sitting down with it and going, I've never seen this. I'm sure it's not great. And I remember you loved it. You just you couldn't stop ranting about it. You were like, man, the I best. hated it when Michael Caine <laughs> showed up and had sex with Bess Armstrong. And I, I was like kind of positive on High Road to China, and then I, that movie crashed and burned. Our next Tom Selleck film, just the opposite. Tom Selleck <laughs> is Lassiter. Entertain me, Nick. Do I shock you? I don't know. Has my hair turned white? The man in the middle. Make her leave, Nick. Make her go away. Is the man outside the law. I'll be moving fast. I'll only have time for one phone call. Lassiter. Rated R. Starts Friday, February 17th at a theater near you. Please check newspaper. I like this movie. I like it. Okay. I I didn't get it. I watched it and I thought it was a lot of people in costumes. Nobody really looks like they belong in the period or like they're comfortable in the period or like they even talked about really what period are we exactly in? And I, I don't buy Selleck and Bob Hoskins as existing in the same world. All right. Well, look, once in a while, 
I am just struck by movie star chemistry. It's amazing how much goodwill. There's a couple of scenes in this movie between Tom Selleck and Jane Seymour. None of them are truly essential to the film. They're just character moments. They are so beautiful. And it's just such a movie star moment with them together. I was like, I, I like watching the two of them together. Interesting. Okay, so that is that is what Reckless was for me. But Reckless is mopey. I, see, I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was. And I think a lot of that was just the soundtrack. Like, the soundtrack in Reckless was well chosen enough for me that I went, all right, I like looking at them. And I, I, they look good on motorcycles and fine. This is, if he's a cat burglar, he is so mild-mannered in this. He is a kitty burglar. He is... Oh, he's so toothless. He's so charming. It feels to me like it's the beginning of this era where they were like, okay, uh, we know he's charming because we see it weekly on TV. We get it. So, Tom, just just be Tom. Hey, you're Tom, and you're a cat burglar. Tom, be, be Tom. The Indiana Jones angle didn't work. Now, let's try this. I swear this movie feels like it was supposed to be part one of the ongoing Lassiter adventures. It's Albert Ruddy producing, so Albert Ruddy was certainly not above planning to make a series of uh, very low-budget movies starring somebody he could exploit. Was it Roger Young who would go on to direct a terrible Michael Keaton comedy called The Squeeze? And I wonder how he got this movie, and I did a little digging, and of course he directed the Magnum P.I. pilot. Ooh, uh, I'm glad you like it. And my pushback may be largely based on uh, long residual guilt, Scott, because when I caddied for Mr. Tom Selleck... Wow. And he asked me what I thought of his stuff. I was able to tell him truthfully that I like Magnum P.I. And I lied my little dick off about Lasseter and told him it was great. For some reason, Lauren Hutton as a psychotic Nazi who stabs men post coitus. I don't understand that subplot doesn't really. I Lauren Hutton to me is deadly in this movie. She's one of the reasons that I'm I'm really resisting your uh, your joy about the film because. Oh, Bob Hoskins is the uh, the inspector who is uh, forcing Lassiter of the film Lassiter to uh, steal something from the German embassy. And there's Joe Regalbuto as a, a very young FBI agent. And he's really good in the movie. I will agree with you on that. He is good. OK, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Lassiter is the best Tom Selleck film yet. Uh, that is low praise, man. All right. Well, hey, um, since we've done one unofficial remake, let's do an official remake now of a Preston Sturges classic. Man, you want to talk about setting up a very, very high bar for yourself to clear. That's what they did when they decided to make Unfaithfully Yours. Warning, before falling in love, watch out for these symptoms. Violent attacks. Uncontrollable fits. And insane jealousy. Jealous? Jealous of what? Dudley Moore, Nastasia Kinski, Unfaithfully Yours, a comedy of irrational passion. Unfaithfully Yours is about a world-renowned composer as played by Dudley Moore. He is married to Nastasia Kinski, and together they both have sex with Michael Caine's daughter. <laughs> It's a really weird movie. I really liked this movie growing up. I thought it had a, a good pace, a good energy. I thought it was legitimately funny. Drew, what do you think of this movie? I find myself really frustrated by it. The Sturges film, I adore. I'm not going to hold this movie against I don't think that's the way that works. Like, you know, you, this is its own movie. It plays as its own movie. Do I love the Sturges film? Yes. I think the Sturges film gets the execution of this Right. The the three symphonies in particular, the idea that he is fantasizing about how he would do this to me is the premise of the film and the hook of the film and part of the beauty of the movie. And then watching it play out terribly is then the, the payoff to everything. It becomes a question of how well does Howard Zeif execute that? And I think this is not his most successful film. I think there's a energy that's required for farce to get a really good farce up and running. And for me, farce is that running in and out of bedrooms and, you know, people in pig heads and there's stuff going on. And I, there's there's an ambition to the way he stages this movie that's really admirable. And I saw this theatrically the same way you did. And I, I remember really enjoying the experience of it in the theater. And I remember being hooked by that premise. Uh, Barry Levinson, Valerie Curtin were uh, two of the writers that worked on this adaptation of it. And uh, Robert Klein was the other one. 
it tries really hard and it gets a lot of balls in the air, but I think there's an energy to the, to the direction and the execution of that that's hard to pull off. I know that Barry Levinson, one of the reasons he became a director was he felt like he would write something, people wouldn't execute it right. I get all the ambition of it. I just don't feel like it works. It feels like the goal was, hey, let's remake a Preston Sturges movie. And if it's just half decent, that's passable. And I, I think Albert Brooks is is fine in some of the early stuff. Albert Brooks is very funny. Richard Schull has a good supporting part. It's finally a human being that Dudley Moore is playing again. And I, I like that. I like the fact that we've sat through now several terrible Dudley Moore films where it felt like he showed up and they went, OK, you're Dudley Moore. Just Dudley Moore it up. And he went. Oh, fuck. A lot of these movies that are about male insecurity, they, they refuse to accept or acknowledge that that's what they're about. And to its credit, this movie at least acknowledges that he is a child, that he is being obnoxious and unfair. Jealousy is the thing that this film is about and what a cancer it is. And the idea that if you allow yourself to indulge that, because that's what he tells himself at the beginning, that I'm not that person. I don't believe that. I love my wife. I know she loves me. I know who we are. So I don't need to listen to anybody else. And then his buddy gets in his head and watching it eat at Dudley Moore's confidence. Well, a little bit of Dudley Moore goes a long way. Like you, I think he's considerably more affable and, and likable. While I don't like the movie as much as I used to, I still kind of like it. I think it's got, I think it's passable. It also has a nice, as always, nice little support by Richard Libertini. And I think Kinski is, is she's another person who I, I think directors frequently didn't know what to do with her. It felt like there was a point where she started to take control of how she wanted to be portrayed on film. I don't want to belabor this, but something that I noticed, and I, and I think that you'll agree with me. I've read some reviews of this movie that talk about Kinski kind of the same way they talk about Hemingway in Star 80. And it's just unkind. It's not Kinski, a fine young actress, maybe farce is not built, not her speed. No, it's she can't do this. There was cruelty towards Kinski and there was an anger towards Kinski, uh, I think, in part because of Tess and because of her connection to Polanski, I think. And there was a lot of anger about who her father was and that she was, quote, just a model. Like she took a lot of shit for a long time. And and if you go back and you soak in the press of the early 80s, it's ugly towards her or her. Telling or you, dude, who her father I grew was. up thinking she was a bad actress because of things I had read. You were told that. Yeah, you were told that over and over and over. She's not great in this, but. She, she's given the most thankless role in the movie. She's nothing funny to do. <laughs> if you approach this with baggage about her, I can see why you would want to beat her up for it. But the role is a very complicated role. And she's playing like four different versions of herself. And to her credit, every version that she plays is a different version. It's not just Kinski is Kinski in each thing. She does a fine job. And it's the movie that's the problem. It's the script that's the problem. And I think it's Zeif. He just can't get the plate spinning well enough. Uh, it's amiable, great cast, well shot. Dude, it looked like a big movie. Like, I remember seeing it in the theater, and uh, the thing I do remember about it is it looked giant and slick. But do you remember that there was a mild controversy about the poster? MGM had to pull the poster because uh, people complained that he was, like, stalking his wife and had a knife in his hand? <laughs> I do remember. Holy shit, yes. Oh, wow. I would not have remembered that if you hadn't said that. But the moment you said that, I remember the coverage about it, about, uh, yeah, look at this. Look, Dudley Moore and his wife. And you can't. That's crazy, man. I guess because it was a comedy and he's smiling or something. I don't know. Let us now wrap up February of 1984 with one of the year's biggest hits, a film that literally everybody in the universe loves. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. He's the new kid in town and the music's on his side. Footloose. Paramount Pictures presents Footloose. The year is 1984. You just walked out of the theater. I say, hi, my name's Scott Weinberg. And you say, hi, hi, new best friend. What did you think of Herbert Ross's Footloose? And you would have said... Uh, yeah, it was pretty fun. That was pretty cool. Ah, uh, no. If it was me in 1984, I would have jumped onto your face like a howler monkey and said, I loved that movie. Did you? I fell for this movie like it was a drug and I was the only victim. I thought it was smart and deep and meaningful. And it's not. It's not about any of those things. It's just about selling a soundtrack. 
Okay, this is interesting because when I walked out of it in 1984, I would have said to you, really made use of that soundtrack. And boy, that ending really knew what the fuck it was doing. Uh, that was that ending is confident. That ending, man, if you ever want to see three six foot four white guys doing the worm and break dancing, then yeah, Footloose has the best finale I've ever seen. I want to do a bonus episode with you where we're going to pick the 10 best final scenes of the 80s, not for how they work for us as personal film viewers, but for pushing an audience out the door going, I, everybody in the world should go see that movie. The movie is about a kid who wants to put on a dance in a town where Moody John Lithgow won't allow them to have the dance until he does, until he does. And then at the end, 15 people gather in a barn and dance and glitter is thrown and then the credits roll. The opening credits have more of a pulse than the final sequence of this movie. You are so high you are so wrong i do i am not high when we record this show i will be high in about 15 minutes damn you 100 wrong about that but i will say the opening credits are just as important to the overall success of this film and this movie is literally somebody looked at flash dance and they went all right we need a gender switch version and we need it to be as facile as possible it needs to be as deep as an Oingo Boingo video. It needs to be as plot heavy as a three and a half minute music video. About an hour into the movie, he changes his mind for no good reason. Oh, Diane now, Weist oh, is his that's wife. Not, what, what a waste. That's not true that there's no reason. It's not a deep reason, but the reason is because eventually he has to thaw about the death of his son. The whole thing is personally motivated about one no, kid's no, death. No, no, Drew, I can give you the sequence of this event. There's one guy in town who's like a book burner. So he's supposed to make the preacher look like calm by comparison, right? So that guy comes in, the preacher chastises him about book burning and trying to learn forgiveness instead of criticizing other people. He goes to the book burning thing and he tells them to stop and then literally says, now you can have a dance. Well, because he realized he was pushing his town too far. He realized he was pushing them towards a version of, of restriction that involved the fear of any information or the I'm going to just burn down everything I don't like. And he realized he had started a snowball and he saw something ugly in his fellow townspeople. What you just said right there would have been a damn good scene in this. Film. But I think that I think he has that moment when he sees his neighbors. That whole thing that you just described happens off screen. Oh, I think he does. I think it's when he sees his neighbors at the book burning. I think it's when he walks in and sees that it's his congregation, his familiar faces, all the people that he spent the movie riling up and they've gone too far because of him. That is all played in Lithgow in that scene. There's so much wrong about this movie. Dean Pritchard wrote this movie. This guy is a composer. He wrote Fame. He went around to composers and had them write songs that would be themed that to fit into the theme of this movie. And then he literally built the screenplay around the songs. And as beloved as this film is, you can tell that the screenplay was an afterthought. I would argue you can tell that this screenplay is a jigsaw puzzle where it's like, okay, I've got this song, so I need to build a scene around that song. And it's a jigsaw puzzle. He built a five-minute tractor chicken sequence. Two idiots sitting on tractors. The camera cuts from one tractor to the other, and the music is blaring as if you're watching The Raid 2. It's unbelievable how sloppy and silly it is. Lori Singer, that's who you got when you couldn't get Daryl Hannah. Yeah, she to me, she's she never whoever you play opposite her. I never get anything back from her. So she doesn't work for me in this movie at all. Now, again, back to Dean Pritchard. This is a guy who was born in Hawaii and now he's a he's a, a Broadway composer and he's writing a movie that takes place in Ohio, ostensibly in 1984. This movie feels like it was supposed to take place in 1951. Oh, it's super cornball, dude. But but no, this was dated when it came out. Nobody in the 80s acted like well, this. Well, that's not true, though. There's satanic panic was happening, and there was the, you were absolutely seeing a rise of the the DMRC wanted to put the record label. Uh, you know, there was the pushback against Two Life Crew. The 80s were very afraid of pop music again in a way that the 50s had been. And this movie actually got a little bit ahead of that because it started to really didn't play out in pop culture in real life. And we will see the rise of of maybe this rock and roll is fucking our kids up again. It's the Reagan 80s, man. The only good song on this soundtrack is by Quiet Riot. 
Wow. The songs themselves, as far as how they hold up, uh, this is not a soundtrack I would ever subject myself to on purpose now. These songs are so burnt into the DNA of people from the 80s that it is almost impossible. Holding out for a hero. Let's hear it for the boy. Uh, well, and of course, Footloose. Where in this film is there one impressive piece of dancing? One. You can have that conversation with Herbert Ross. And the reason that I do think this film works and the reason that I'm in a very different place than you and surprised a little bit at how we crisscrossed here because like Footloose was not a big deal to me. But I got it because, oh, my God, suddenly Footloose was everywhere and people went nuts for it. They went back to see it over and over because it is incredibly simple about how it wants to make you happy. And that's Herbert Ross as a dancer, as a guy who his whole life is dance. You can talk all day long about how you think dance should be shot or how you think dance should be portrayed or how you feel good dancing should look. Herbert Ross is a guy whose whole life was about dancing and his films largely are about dancing. We've talked about how much we love Pennies for Heaven. Pennies for Heaven is a terrific film in which when he shoots dance and emphasizes dance, he does it in a very particular way. We talked about that Chris Walken dance scene, and that is one of the best directed pieces of dance from the 80s, just in terms of understanding, I want to see this performer's whole body. I want to see what he's doing, and I know how to shoot what he's doing to sell every bit of why this dance is great. And he does none of that. I disagree with you. The opening scene of this film is about one thing, feet. And from the very beginning, when he plays that song, it's just feet and that beat. And some of those people are terrible dancers. It's not about whether they're good or not. It's about the joy of the doing it. Chris Penn is most of the people watching this film. They can't dance. Chris Penn couldn't dance when he started making this movie. And I would argue Chris Penn couldn't dance when he finished making this movie. Chris Penn looks like a bear who has been trained to dance. But uh, one of the best things in the film, I will give you that. He also looks like he's having the fucking time of his life while he's doing it. And that is what this movie's about more than actual good dancing. Herbert Ross can shoot a dance scene that would fucking knock your socks off. And he's done it. And he's proven that what he's doing in this movie is different. This movie is about a town where dancing has literally been repressed. So when people are allowed to dance again, they don't know how when that final dance scene comes up and they get into that dance circle and you're saying there's not a good dance move in that scene. But look at them. Look at how happy they are. Look at the joy and the energy of that sequence. Wait, wait, but if they've never if, if dancing is illegal, how do these three white guys know how to break dance so damn good? Of course, they've been doing it in their room. Of course, they've been trying. But this is the first time they're doing it in front of each other and they're throwing their moves down. That final sequence, if you don't understand, and I, I'm going to make the argument that this is why that I, I say that I didn't understand the ending of Footloose. No, why? But why I think it's a scene that, that sent people out of that theater ready to go buy a ticket to see it again. Again, and why I think it was a monster hit is because the energy of that final sequence is saying, not only are you at this dance scene, but we want you to jump in and dance with us. It's that's what that scene is. It is everybody in the dance circle. Everybody throw your move on the floor. And there's a joy to that, that this movie communicates ably. I think all the cornball stuff, everything you talked about, that's all true. John Lithgow gives it everything he has to try and make it work. He's great. He's great. Diane Weist in very, very little moments has some great moments. Kevin Bacon's performance is not bad. I think it has its moments. It is well shot. There's the scene where they go to the country bar in the middle of the film and Chris Penn says he can't dance and he goes with Sarah Jessica Parker and she waits as long as she can and you watch her and she's like curly when they're playing pop goes the weasel and he wants to get in the ring and beat the shit out of people and he can't stop himself she finally goes i'm sorry i have to go and she runs out to the dance floor and she just dances and there's a dude who starts dancing with her and they dance perfectly choreographed it's fine it's their dancing crispin watches as long as he can and it's killing him the movie gets his the whole thing of why you want to participate why you want to be out on the floor why you're scared to be out on the floor that's where I think Herbert Ross is the guy. I, look, I'm not telling anybody that Footloose is great, but the reason it worked is Herbert Ross's love of dance, and he gets that you don't have to be good to enjoy doing it. 
I wish I had gotten that from it because I am not a good dancer and I am often embarrassed to dance. Sometimes I will just throw caution to the wind. And I really wish that during those some of those moments, I didn't get the impression he wanted to dance. I got the impression that he would do what he had to do to sleep with her. And he also wanted to beat that guy's ass. And it's weird because I would have been less generous in the 80s than you would have been. And I think I'm way more generous to it now than you are. All I could say is. Nobody had sex with anybody's teenage daughter in this movie. And thank God. Thank you, John Lithgow, for keeping it in your pants. All right. Well, Scott, uh, I want to real quick. I just want to say thank you to all of our regular Patreon supporters, all of the listeners of the regular podcast. All of you make the difference to us every week in terms of just the the energy to face the mountain of work that is 80s all over. And uh, thank you so much for your continued support and for turning new people onto the show. That is really the key to us making it to 1989 is that this thing continue to grow. Anytime you can give our show a compliment, we appreciate it because there are tons of great podcasts out there and we appreciate uh, the hour or so a week that you give us. And uh, next time it's going to be more than an hour because we are covering one of the craziest months of 1984. Hey Scott, would you, uh, would you be interested in a comedy classic? Well, it depends who's Michael Caine having sex with in it. Uh, Would you like to see uh, Stephen King finally stumble? Would you like to see the birth of one of the biggest careers, directing careers of the entire decade? I'll tell you what. How about the movie that changed 1984 Drew McQueenie's life? You could watch the beginning of one of the worst franchises of the entire decade. And in fact, Scott, how about this? I'm going to make you a promise. Next time, we're going to cover the worst movie of the 1980s. (laughs) 